You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Last week's intro to the podcast was kind of heavy and it was kind of long, so I'm going to try to keep it light and try to keep it short this week. But first, uh, yeah, something heavy that I didn't get to last week is weighing on me and I want to talk about it, so forgive me. In Texas, we got a taste of our post-Roe future. A woman, Lizelle Herrera, arrested after performing a self-induced abortion. Details are sketchy. They're sketchy still a couple of weeks later, but Herrera was charged with murder, taken to jail, and held on a $500,000 bond. The charges were dropped because she hadn't actually broken any laws. It was reported that the ER staff called the sheriff after Herrera showed up at the hospital and told them she had self-induced an abortion. The sheriff apparently arrested Herrera because he felt like it. Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Vagina Bible, frequent guest on the Lovecast, wrote a long post out on Vagenda advising women in red states who might be self-inducing abortions more often these days, self-inducing with medications that are safe and legal in blue states, but only safe in red states, not legal. Dr. Gunter wrote a long post advising women that emergency room physicians can't tell the difference between a miscarriage and a self-induced abortion. So... There is no reason to tell an ER doctor or nurse that you are there in an emergency room because you self-induced an abortion. You can just tell them it was a miscarriage. Now, complications from medication abortions are rare, but they do happen. And women in Texas and other red states need to know, well, I guess they need to know that they can't trust their healthcare providers not to call the police on them. So don't disclose This is where we are, warning women to lie to doctors and nurses about why they're seeking emergency medical care. And Roe is still, at least in theory, the law of the land. Right now, an American woman has the same right, a constitutional right to an abortion, just as a gun nut has a constitutional right to a Glock. And yet, you can legally sell assault rifles out of the trunks of cars in red states, but you'll have to drive hundreds of miles to another state and wait two days to get an abortion And the friend who drove you to your appointment for an abortion can be sued by random strangers back home in Texas. I think Selena Meyer may have said it best. If men got pregnant, you could get an abortion in an ATM. Let's state the obvious. All right. I said I was going to keep it light this week, and I've already failed. And I said I was going to keep it short compared to last week's intro, and the jury is still out on that. But I'm going to try so quickly. And there's no smooth way to make a transition to what I'm going to talk about next. This is nothing but awkward. But you know what I tell people to do about awkwardness? Acknowledge it and power through it. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm acknowledging it. Here I am now going to power through it. All right. So I want to awkwardly draw your attention to a movie I stumbled over on Netflix. A lot of listeners watched and enjoyed my last recommendation, Young Royals, also on Netflix, And I've got a new one this week for anyone who needs a distraction from the distressing headlines. It's called Love and Leashes. It's a rom-com. It's a love story. It's a forbidden workplace romance. And it's about BDSM. And it's charming. 
and sweet and surprisingly smart about how two people might get into a DS relationship. It's also a good illustration of something I've been saying for years. There are two kinds of people in kinky relationships. There are the people who were tying themselves up when they were 13 years old and the people who fell in love with those people. There are people who come kinky and people who get kinky. In Love and Leashes, Yihu is a sub. He comes kinky. He's played by Korean pop star Lee Jun Young. And his character's co-worker, Ji Woo, played by singer and actress Soi Hyun, accidentally opens a package meant for him and discovers a collar and a leash also meant for him. My apologies for butchering the names of these actors and the characters they played. Anyway, this film, Love and Leashes, it's really good. It's really cute. It's a glimpse at some interesting aspects of Korean life. It's a Korean film, the workplace culture there, the role of sex hotels in the lives of young singles. And uh, yeah, the guy who plays the young male sub, he's really cute. His bark when he's a dog, a little shrill. But if you were disappointed by Fifty Shades of Grey and Bound, also on Netflix, if you wanted to see a romantic comedy starring kinky people that gets kink right, including taking it slow, reading about it, thinking about it, negotiating a scene in advance, checking in with a trusted friend about what you're doing and how you're feeling, and again, you need a break from world and national news, Love and Leashes on Netflix. Highly recommend it. All right, coming up on today's show, Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money is back to talk about a new special podcast that she's just made all about, well, she likes to say Death, Sex, and Money is about hard things. Her new podcast also about hard things. Anna Sale joins us on the Magnum to talk about it. And of course, on the micro this week, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. But if you want more Savage Lovecast, more guests, more questions, and no ads, go to savage.love right now and become a Magnum sub. All right, let's get to it. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old heteroflexible woman calling from the Pacific Northwest. I have a question for you about vibrators. So basically, the backstory is that um, I've never been able to orgasm during partnered sex without either masturbating or using a vibrator. And recently, I've been trying to accept that, that reality about myself more and just be more open with partners about the fact that I want to use a vibrator during sex and that, that, that no one's ever made me orgasm and just sort of honest about you know, how my body works and what I enjoy in that way. And I've found that a lot of men, I mainly date men, um, and I find that it seems like a lot of them are perfectly fine with this at first, but then when they come to sort of see that, you know, they're never going to make me orgasm and that I really will want to use a vibrator 90% of the time during or at least I will want to use it at some point most of the times we have sex, they start to make comments that make it clear that that's not like their top preference in a partner. You know, comments like, oh, well, it's fine, but, you know, I've everyone else I've dated, I've been able to make orgasm. So, you know, things like that. Or they'll say, like, they wish that they could make me orgasm kind of thing. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on how I can filter out partners to try to only date people who are maybe, you know, even into the fact that I want to use vibrators without 
broadcasting that on my dating app profiles and without rolling that out too soon. I feel like I've tried to do more work on accepting myself and I just want to try to find people who would be okay with this about me too and possibly even excited about it. So yeah, like when would you recommend discussing this with a partner? And I don't know if you have any tips for the types of things I could say to really make sure I'm only dating people who are on board with this. I'm trying to think of a way that you could make sure you're only dating people who are fine, dating men who are fine with you using a vibrator during sex, incorporating a vibrator during partnered sex, without putting that on your dating profile, without rolling that out at the very start of the relationship. And short of having the men that you're thinking about dating, the men who message you on dating apps that you want to meet up with, having them kidnapped and strapped to a chair and injected with truth serum and then interrogating them or having them interrogated about whether they'd be fine with this or not, and then releasing them back into the wild and going on a date with only the ones who are definitely going to be fine with it. I don't know how you do this without putting it on your dating apps, which would seem a little odd because I don't think this is something that you need to necessarily roll out on a dating app. But you're definitely going to have to put it out, you know, throw this down on the table right away when you first start having partnered sex with a new guy. You're just going to have to say, hey, this is how I have orgasms. This is how my body works. Uh, and this is a tool we're going to incorporate into partnered sex. And yeah, and you're just going to have to then weed out the guys who have a problem with that. They get to make you come when they use a vibrator. They are making you come with that vibrator. It always blows my mind when I meet people who think they didn't make somebody come if they used a vibrator during sex because, you know, it's a tool and it's not just them. And you don't look at somebody, as I like to say, who built a house and then they show you the hammer and you're like, well, I guess you didn't really build that house since you used a hammer. You didn't drive every nail into every two by four with your forehead. So you didn't build that house. No, it's like you used a hammer. You used appropriate tools, saws and hammers and whatever else to build that house. And that's how a guy who's with a woman who requires the intense focused sensations that a vibrator provides. Uh, that's how a guy has to regard those vibrators as tools that he is using to build that orgasm with and for her. <sighs> And of course, you know, his fingers, his tongue, his dick, all of that, his body, his brain, all of that, everything he brings to the table, his dirty talk, his smell, his pheromones, all of that helps arouse you and get you to the point where the vibrator can step in and get you to, you know, to the point of orgasmic inevitability and get you off. But yeah, you're just going to have to be matter of fact about it. You have to put that on the table and any guy who runs from you or begins to say that shitty thing, like all the other women I've ever been with have been able to come without a vibrator, guarantee, I guarantee you, that some of the women that he's been with, if not most of the women that he's been with, who could come without, or just come from if what he means is PIV sex, were faking it and weren't coming, but he thinks they were. That's why people shouldn't fake, because then guys think they have, you know, awesome super sex powers and shit all over the next woman they encounter, the first woman they encounter who's honest with them about what they need during sex in order to get off, including shaming women who want to touch their own clits or have him touch 
their clits during PIV sex to get her off. A lot of guys will shame those women because every other girl they've ever been with could come just from getting fucked. Yeah, no. Power through those moments. Disabuse him of that notion. Yeah, no. This is what I need. And if you are going to have a meltdown about it or be insecure about it or make me feel bad about it, then we're not going to be able to date, much less fuck. All that said, I do think that maybe a guy is allowed to have a you know process with you in a non-shamey way, a little bit of a, not a sad about not being able to get you off with his own tongue if that's something that he's enjoyed doing. You know, it's, I hear from people who enjoy performing cunnilingus that it's quite something, it's quite a sensation, quite a crazy feel to have your mouth on somebody's vulva and clit and for that person to have an orgasm as you work their clit with your tongue. Uh, And, you know, maybe he's going to miss that. I was with a guy once for a while who couldn't come from getting head. I really like giving head. And I didn't shame him for that. It was just a fact about him and I could roll with that. It just didn't work for him. He didn't like getting blowjobs. And I was like, all right, okay. I kind of missed that, but okay. Me saying, me being honest about how I felt that I kind of missed it wasn't meant to shame him. It was just, you know, I got to say that and grieve it and move the fuck on and then let him blow me, which I enjoyed very much. So if a guy just needs to articulate that and if a guy can articulate that, like uh, sometimes I kind of miss being able to, you know, get my girlfriend off with just my tongue. So long as he can say that without then turning around or adding on or starting with every other girl I've ever been with. Maybe you let him express that. Maybe you pat him on the head and grieve that briefly with him and then remind him that, yeah, that's not going to happen with you. And if he's choosing to be with you, that's the price of admission he's going to have to pay to be with you. (sighs) All this is a very long way of saying I don't have an answer for your question. Your question was literally... How do I avoid dating any guys who are going to have a problem with this without telling guys up front that this is how my body works and what I need? And yeah, you're not going to be able to avoid that. The only way to avoid dating those guys is to tell a guy, every guy, you're going to date, going to fuck, that this is how your body works. And then if he has a problem with it, tell him about it early. If he has a problem with it, don't date him. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 40 ish by male who is recently single and starting to date again. And to much to my surprise, I am finding out that I am a daddy and that a lot of younger men, almost even boys in like say their early twenties are really interested in me in a daddy kind of dom sub almost relationship period. And I'm just incredibly inexperienced in this and a little bewildered. When I was their age, I found older men just not interesting whatsoever. And I only wanted to date people my age. And that seemed to feel like kind of the norm. And now it's like those that are about half my age are really interested in me as a dad type who's kind of a dom sub. And they want me to talk dirty and they want me to be dominant and and even little role play and some tying up and you know some spanking and choking and things and i am very intrigued and of course love the attention but i just feel so inexperienced and i don't really know 
how to really proceed or how to get better at it other than, of course, go through with some of these experiences because it's right now it's just all talk on the apps and things. But I just wondered what kind of advice you had to somebody who's, I guess, a daddy but is new to being a daddy. <laughs> and how do you kind of proceed from here in a, a way that's you know satisfying for both partners? There's lots of different kinds of daddies a gay guy can be. You can be a dom daddy, a leather daddy, a plain old daddy, a sub daddy, a sugar daddy. Sounds like the guys you're talking to, the particular genre of daddy they're interested in. Dom daddies, BDSM daddies, dirty, filthy, dominant, suck my dick boy daddies. That's not hard to be. That's really... An attitude, you can read some erotica, you can watch some pornography, you can let the young men that you're talking to, young men, guys in their early 20s are not almost boys or close to boys or nearly boys. They are full-ass grown adult men and have been for years. Please don't round down guys in their early 20s who are attracted to you in your 40s to minor status. They're men, you're a man. The boy daddy thing in gay culture isn't about parental relationships. It isn't a fetishization of incest. It's just sort of affectionate pet names that acknowledge an age and experience and eroticize an age and experience and power differential, like slaps a name on it so that you can Approach it, acknowledge it, play with it, weaponize it erotically, not weaponize it for leverage in the relationship. And then when you're not having sex, it kind of recedes, somehow playing up a power differential that may be built in because of an age gap uh, during sex, during erotic play. Then when you're not having sex, when you're not engaged in that erotic play, it becomes less pronounced because you exaggerate the power differential for boners when you choose, when you're not having boners, when you're not exaggerating the power differential, it can be easier, paradoxically, to see each other as equals. I don't want people out there listening, straight people out there listening, to think gay men who throw boy or daddy around mean minor or mean parent. It doesn't mean that. Any more than when straight people call each other baby, they mean infants. All right, so just wanted to address really quickly the straight people who may be listening in now on this call. Uh, you should be a confident daddy and you should own your inexperience. You should tell any boy, man, adult man, who's interested in getting together with you or playing with you that this is new and you're kind of growing into this role of dom daddy. So they shouldn't expect any expert knot tying, but it's pretty easy to follow someone's lead when it comes to the kind of dirty talk they like. You can also ask somebody to send you some of the porn that they've watched. And I'm sure a lot of these younger guys who are into daddies have been watching a lot of daddy porn and they probably have files saved with clips or links to their favorites that they could forward to you, which doesn't then require you to, you know, become an actor or memorize those lines. It just gives you a sense, a flair, a flavor of what it is that they're interested in. And then look inside yourself. If you want to be a dom daddy or cultivate your dominant 
inner daddy self, you want to bring a daddy dom persona to the surface, what would that mean for you? How can you say those things or do those things in a way that feels authentic to you as a person and erotic for you in the moment? Because you're not an actor hitting marks. You're not going through the motions just to arouse your sex partner. You want this, if you're going to lean into it, to work for you. So you're going to have to find that dom guy inside you and let him come out to play. And a couple of these boys, men, adult fucking men, might be able to help you do that. Enjoy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay male from the Seattle area. I am calling in because I need a little bit of guidance on how to have a discussion with my partner. So we've been dating officially for three months. We've been together for about seven months. So my issue is he's a top. I tend to bottom. I also really enjoy oral as well. He doesn't like oral at all. He doesn't like getting head. He doesn't like giving head. And that's become a non-negotiable for me that I don't think that I was super aware of prior to this relationship. But I mean, I wouldn't cheat on them. I think that if it got to the point where I wasn't getting what I wanted that much, then I would leave this relationship. But I do want to work on it. I have had discussions with them about it and let them know like what I expect and what I want. And the most that I've gotten is like, I mean, after like I bought them for them, they already had their clothes back on and I was already getting dressed too. And they're like, oh, did you want to get off? And I kind of felt like a burden at that point. And so I'm wondering if you have any other ways that I can articulate this to them because I made sure that they knew that they're doing a really good job at what we already like doing, right? But that I just like other types of like interactions as well. And I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't putting them down in that way, but also demanding what I wanted. And so I think that got through, but not enough to where it's just natural because it was almost awkward. And we are never awkward. We get along really, really well. The other part about that too is that like he will be on the phone with his friends and like say, oh, I love eating ass. Like, oh, or like, um, he'll be, oh, we have to go because I'm about to eat some ass. Bye. And then it's just like, it's like, oh, do you want to go get Popeyes or something? And I'm like, what? I mean, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. It's not like super my jam either, but like, I appreciate when it happens. And if you're into it, then like, that makes me into it too. So I'm trying to approach this in a way where I'm getting, giving the benefit of the doubt, but also not being too weak. I don't know. I just think that maybe you would have a better way to articulate this. And if that is just ditch the motherfucker already, then I might take your advice, but I really don't want to because I really like this guy. So you describe oral sex, wanting to give it, wanting to get it as a non-negotiable for you. And yet what you're asking me for is how to negotiate with your boyfriend, not around giving or getting oral, but around getting anything out of him. Uh, getting any reciprocal sexual pleasure, any indication from him at all that he's the least bit concerned with your pleasure. Yeah. I'm sorry. Fucking somebody coming in them and getting dressed and then turning to them and saying, Oh wait, did you want to get off too? That's, that should be the end right there. That's a DTMFA moment. That's when you really see who someone is sexually. And if this is who he is, 
three months in and often it's early in a relationship that people are on their best behavior. It's early in a relationship that even someone who doesn't give a shit about other people's sexual pleasure might go out of their way to try to fool that person into thinking they're the kind of person who gives a shit about their partner's sexual pleasure so that you'll continue to date them and hang out with them long enough that walking away from them, you know, in a year or two years is harder to do. And that he's doing that to you at six months or at three months. And this is presumably been going on the entire time. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't in good conscience tell you to do anything but dump this motherfucker. <sighs> but I will answer your question. How do you have this conversation with him? Well, you have the conversation in such a way where the DTMFA is on the table. You have an ultimatum conversation with him where you're like, I've read about guys like you. You might want to read Peggy Ornstein's Girls and Sex. Guys like your boyfriend are this is kind of like a young straight guy way to behave where your partner is there to get fucked and for you to dump a load in, but getting them off not only isn't your job, but it's not even something that has occurred to you. That's kind of a young straight boy thing. That's why there's an orgasm gap uh, in a lot of straight relationships. And your kind of, I really do think you should read Girls and Sex by Peggy Ornstein, you're kind of wringing your hands like a lot of young straight girls might, where you're afraid to advocate for your own sexual pleasure. Because what? Because this guy who doesn't give a shit about whether you get off or not, who won't suck your dick or eat your ass or let you suck his dick, that this guy might leave you? Is that what you're afraid of? You should be running toward, you should be running to the door. But, you know, you don't want the DTMFA advice. I'm going to take that off the table. Would you go to him and say, look, sex can't keep happening like this, where it's just about you, your dick, my ass, your pleasure, and I'm not getting off. And yeah, so when we have sex, I have to come too. And, you know, a lot of people who really enjoy bottoming will stroke themselves while they bottom. A lot of guys who really enjoy bottoming will masturbate while they're being you know, fucked and time their climax for when their partner climaxes are pretty close. Uh, if you prefer a, you know, look, man, no hands orgasm provided to you, look, man, none of your hands orgasm provided to you by your partner, you're going to have to make that clear to him. But that, God, I'm sorry that he comes and the fact that you have not ejaculated during this sex session with him doesn't register for him as a problem until he's dressed. Yeah, he knows it was a problem. The getting dressed and waiting till you were getting dressed, that was his way of making, uh, getting you off a chore of disincentivizing you saying in that moment, yeah, I would like to get off because that would have meant uh, him having to get undressed again. You know, he's not going to do anything with his mouth. He's going to do something with his hands and you having to get undressed again. What a pain in the ass. I'm ready for pizza. Let's go eat. Yeah, no. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's getting away with it because he has correctly guessed that you will put up with this shit. Conversation you're going to have with him, I will not put up with this shit anymore. A one strike you're out policy for you going forward if you give him another chance. If you have that conversation, then you keep fucking this guy. If slash when, and it's when not if he does this again, and when is probably going to be the very next time you have sex with him, will you please then... Take the advice I wanted to give you at the top of this answer and dump that motherfucker already. 
Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 34-year-old woman living on the East Coast. About a year ago, I ended things with a person that I had been dating for about seven months. We started out really great, and then sort of as the relationship progressed, I started to notice some behavior on his part that just kind of threw up some red flags for me. In particular, he really had a hard time kind of taking responsibility or accountability for kind of crummy, disrespectful behavior. Things became high conflict when they didn't have to be, or he'd get really defensive. And, you know, when I asked him about this, he would say something along the lines of, well, you know, I just have a lot of baggage, you know. He would blame a lot of things on this particular ex that he had. By his account, they had a really high conflict, tumultuous, kind of on-again, off-again relationship. And he seemed really happy to not be dating her anymore. But like I said, Anytime he had sort of a knee-jerk, angry response, he sort of related it back to this person. Okay, flash forward several months after we break up with him, I started dating someone else. I was kind of moving on with my life and, you know, I did what people do and I skimmed his social media um, with the knowledge that he likely was also dating someone else and I was totally fine with that at that point. What I didn't anticipate was finding out that he had gotten back with his quote-unquote crazy ex. This is the person that he blamed basically for the blowout fight that ended our relationship. As you can imagine, I was pretty surprised to see that, and I am pretty fucking hurt, honestly. I can't help but thinking about, you know... Were they were they fucking around beforehand? Was there something that I didn't know about going on while we were still a couple? I understand I'm never going to know the answer to these questions, but I literally cannot stop thinking about this. I rum- ruminate on this for hours, and um, I need help <laughs> getting over this. I need to get this man out of my head. Let's accept the premise of your worst-case scenario, that while you were dating this jerk— he was fucking around with his ex, not just still in contact with his ex, a woman he told you was crazy, but fucking her. All right. Okay. If that inspired him to, you know, engineer the conflict that led to the end of your relationship with this high conflict, really defensive, kind of angry guy who obviously clearly transparently engages in a form of projection. I'm sure he's now telling his ex that he is back with who he told you was crazy. I'm sure he's now telling that woman that you were crazy. If fucking that woman behind your back got him out of your life and out of your bed, all right. Even if that's the worst case scenario, and we don't know if that actually happened, but if that did happen, good. You should be grateful whatever greased the skids to get this guy out of your bed out of your apartment, out of your life, out of your pussy, was in the end a good thing for you. You might want to go get a full STI workup if you're concerned that he was fucking this woman and fucking you at the same time and you guys weren't using protection because he told you that you were exclusive. Other than that, (laughs) this is a good example of why you shouldn't skim your ex's social media. You might find something that sticks in your craw and then sticks in your head. But it's too late for that. It's too late to avoid his social media. I just think you have to adjust how you look at it. You need to move the frame a bit here. And yeah, 
yeah, it's good. It's good that he's not with you anymore. If this woman that he complained to you bitterly about and said was crazy is as shitty as he told you she is, well, then I guess they deserve each other because he sounds like a pretty shitty person too. But my hunch is that he's the common shitty ass crazy denominator in all of these shitty high conflict relationships with crazy bitches, which I'm sure how he talks about you and his ex that he got back together with and every other woman he's ever dated with all of his friends. And that sucks. It sucks. And maybe that's part of what is causing you to turn this over and over in your head. It's just knowing he's out there or maybe I'm putting this in your head and it's going to make the ruminations worse. Knowing he's out there talking about you the way he talked about his ex. The takeaway here for you And I think what other people can learn from your example is to run from people who bitch and bitch and bitch to you about how awful their ex was. Even if it's true that their ex was awful, it's something that a person should have the emotional intelligence to know not to do with a new partner. And it doesn't excuse bad behavior in a new relationship if your ex was terrible. You got to do the work to get yourself in good working order before you get into your next relationship. Having been in a shitty relationship with a shitty person prior to your current relationship is not a get out of the doghouse free card for being a fucking asshole. It's not an excuse. And that's what you have to know going forward. You know, if, if you're with somebody and they're bitching endlessly about your ex, you're highly likely to be the next ex that they bitch endlessly about. And it's probably their problem. They're with somebody for a year or two or, you know, six months and they gradually open up to you and share with you that their previous relationship wasn't a happy one and that they'd gotten into a relationship with a toxic person. And yes, there are toxic people out there who get into relationships with good and decent and functional people. I would point to you as an example as I assume a good and decent and functional person who got into a relationship with a toxic person. That is a thing that can happen. But Yeah. You don't talk about those relationships in the terms and in the ways he talked about his ex. Yeah, no, no. This is a red flag. Oh, my ex is a fucking crazy bitch. My ex is so crazy. It was so awful. That's why I'm treating you poorly because of my ex, that fucking bitch. Yeah, no, no. That is a red flag. It's one of the reddest and biggest red flags out there. It is a May Day parade, Soviet style, 1984, full of red flags. Hey Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth, 38 year old West Coast male here. Uh, So I've come to realize that the more I ejaculate, the better my orgasms feel. I stay hydrated, I eat healthy, I'm in great shape, but I've heard all of these kind of old wives tales that you can eat, you know, a head of celery or you can eat some combination of supplements or there's even some supplements now that, you know, claim to increase semen volume. Is any of this real besides staying hydrated, avoiding masturbating, and just being healthy? Is there any way to increase your semen volume? Nope. The only way to increase the volume of your semen is to wait a little bit longer between ejaculations. You know, if you wait four or five days, if you're not masturbating every day, if you're not masturbating three times a day, you'll blow a bigger load. But supplements, herbal pills, old wives' tales, other than staying hydrated and being in uh, you know, good general health, you're, there's nothing you can do. The amount of semen that you're pumping out is the amount of semen that you're pumping out. And as you get older, the volume of your ejaculate is going to 
fall a bit. Here's a trick though that you can play on yourself. I'm sure one of the things that makes your orgasms better is the visual cue you get when you see yourself blow a massive load that that reinforces your own, you know, the, the conclusion you're making that, oh, that was a good orgasm. That was an intense orgasm. I really felt that one because you're watching all of that and you're more satisfied with that orgasm because of the visual, because of the visuals. So here's what you do. Don't watch, just close your eyes, put on a blindfold, have a wank and concentrate on the orgasmic uh, contractions, the sensations. Even if all your glands and your nuts aren't producing as much ejaculate as they once did in your prostate, you're going to still have, you know, if you treat yourself to a good orgasm with a nice ramping up and enjoy those uh, plateaus on your way to the point of orgasmic inevitability, you will have the same basic number of orgasmic contractions. You will have, it'll have the same feeling and then make an assessment of how that orgasm felt before you open your eyes or take off that blindfold and look at the puddle of cum on your stomach. And it may surprise you that without those visual cues, you are enjoying, you are perceiving those orgasms, even where you may be producing less ejaculate as every bit as pleasurable as those orgasms when you produce more ejaculate. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Anna Sale, host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios. She's also the author of Let's Talk About Hard Things and working a theme here. There's a new series coming out with Anna Sale as the host called Hard. Anna, <laughs> hard. What is hard about? Hard seems to be an obsession of yours, I must say, at this point. It is. I'm really into hard things. Um, yes, this <laughs> this new series is all about our bodies, about the history of Viagra, and about erectile dysfunction, and how all of those have fit together and how we communicate and don't about sex. And we started it because um, we knew we were looking ahead to the 25th anniversary of the introduction of Viagra back in 1998. So a different kind of hard thing now. Yes. Turning your attentions to not death, not sex, not money, dick. Exactly. <laughs> so you're yes. muscling in on my territory. I should, be, I should be offended. I know. I've learned so much, Dan. That's why I want to talk to you. I just want to compare notes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so for you probably, you know, I remember when, you know, I was writing Savage Love 30 years ago. And so I was writing Savage Love briefly in a world that didn't have uh, Viagra in it or erectile dysfunction television commercial selling Viagra starring Bob Dole back in the day. <laughs> so it's, it sometimes feels like we've lived in a world that's always had Viagra in it because it's been so long, but we didn't, where did it come from? How did it come to be? What's helped so many other people <laughs> there come to be? <laughs> Well, you know, that's a, the, the history is kind of amazing. I mean, if you look back just like 40 years ago, if you came into a doctor's office and said, I'm having trouble maintaining or getting an erection, um, a physician, a medical doctor would say, well, uh, I recommend you talk to a therapist um, because that was pretty much the only tool they had at their disposal. Um, and then right. there were, you know, of course, surgical penile implants was was one thing that urologists then had at their disposal. Then injectable drugs um, developed in the early 80s, which was around the time that they realized that erections were the result of 
the muscles in the penis relaxing as opposed to contracting, which is something I did not know. Maybe that is something that is more familiar to someone who knows what that sensation feels like. Um, <laughs> and, and then in the in the in the mid eighties in the UK, there was a, a set of chemists at Pfizer who were actually experimenting with a what they thought was going to be a drug to address chest pain. It was a cardiovascular drug, and they did a trial in Wales. Um, at the time, there were a lot of laid-off coal miners in Wales, so this was a trial that included a bunch of laid-off coal miners, and they were given this drug, and they all got together uh, after taking it, and they were asked what symptoms they noticed, and one brave man raised his hand and said, actually, I noticed I couldn't, had an erection all night, wasn't expecting that, and then all the other men said, yeah, me too, me too, and so then this group of chemists at Pfizer were like, wait, this cardiovascular drug, which is about blood flow, um, is has this other purpose that we weren't expecting. And they realized they were sitting on a marketing gold mine. How long was the interval between uh, laid off miners in Wales with boners, unexpected boners, uh, and Viagra coming onto the market, hitting the market? Well, Viagra was approved by the FDA in 1998. So, um, you know, the, after that sort of aha moment um, in the 80s. Then there were trials, clinical trials, and then there was the, the you know, figuring out how to market this thing, um, which is what led to Bob Dole, who was, uh, of course, one of the first spokespeople um, for Viagra. And the messaging early on was all about um, really defining that erectile dysfunction was the result of uh, you know, you had this tool if it was the result of a physiological medical condition. So you heard a lot about men who struggled with maintaining erections because of blood pressure trouble or diabetes or prostate surgery in the case of, of Senator Bob Dole. Um, so there was actually this like flip where all of a sudden what used to be largely considered something that was treated by the mental health community became uh, talked about as like, here we have this pill and it is going to fix um, this problem that is physiological in your penis. I, I, I really just want to jump in here for a second and, and highlight something that, that, that gets said. Uh, you know, we have these boner pills. You know, we have Viagra, uh, Cialis. We don't have uh, birth control pills for men. But often when, you know, people get online or make jokes or complain about the existence of these boner pills, it's framed as like, oh, yeah, medical science left no stone uncovered in its effort over the centuries to come up with a boner pill. And yet we don't have a female Viagra. And in reality, it wasn't like Pfizer set out to create a boner pill. It was an accident. It was a total accident, and there were many, many twists and turns. I mean, this uh, Pfizer chemist I interviewed, he talked about having to go into his boss's office and close the door and say, I need more money to finish this research. I think, I mean, and he he said, I'm not leaving your office until you give me more money because they had just been dumping all of this research money into what they thought was going to be a heart pill that wasn't turning out to be an effective chest pain pill. Um, and he just said, I'm not leaving. They got the money. And that's finally after those that, that trial with the, the Welsh coal miners, they realized, oh, there's a lot of money to be made here. Yeah. But I think I think something really important that I kind of didn't really even get before I talked to this chemist was early on at Pfizer, there was also a lot of interest in the fact that this was um, this was a drug that would amplify existing arousal. 
So it was something that was affecting blood flow. It wasn't something that was working on the brain to increase libido. Right. Um, and if, because, you know, this chemist told me, you know, if that's what I was suggesting at Pfizer, I would be told, you, you, you know, we're going to create a drug that's going to make people get raped. We're not going to do that. So the arousal, mm. enhancing existing arousal was actually quite key. Yeah, that's something I have to emphasize all the time because when it, it comes up a lot, especially in conversations about an effort to create a female Viagra, because when you read about efforts to create a female Viagra, they're often framed as efforts to address low sexual desire in women. It pills to make women horny. And what Viagra is, is a pill that a man who is horny takes so that, you know, or anticipates being horny in a couple of hours, takes so that he can get hard when he's horny. It's not a pill you take to get horny and get hard. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, does the series go into female Viagra, these efforts to find one? You know, we don't go into that um, exactly, but something that I have thought about a lot when it comes to uh, sex as a woman, I'm a straight woman, is that the third episode in our series is about sort of like, huh, like how do we want to think about what good sex is in this age of Viagra? Mm -hmm. What if you're one of the people, and we heard from a lot of them while we were doing our reporting, for whom Viagra is not a reliable way to have uh, it's to have and maintain an erection and to have a sex life that is solely reliant on, on penetrative sex. And we, I'd actually talked to this young guy who was paralyzed from the chest down when he was 23 years old. And he talked about, um, you know, basically having no sensation in his penis. He can maintain, he can get an erection if he takes Viagra. But now for him, sex is not an either or. It's a both and like he enjoys having sex with his partners he's a he's a gay man he, he enjoys topping he likes the way that feels to continue to be able to have sex in that way that he did before he became or to continue to have sex in the way that he thought of himself before he became disabled but then after that he really enjoys asking his partner to touch his neck in a certain way or rub his head mm -hmm and describes orgasm as this sort of like inc like incredible uh, explosion of sensation. Um, and, and as I heard him telling me this, I was thinking like, huh, that's kind of how I have thought about sex as a woman. Like sometimes having penetrative sex doesn't make me orgasm. And then I have to think about what is the way I can tell my partner to, that I want to feel really good. But I also, you know, I like both and um, rather than either or. One of the paradoxes of, you know, the advice used to be, you know, I'm thinking back to the advice I gave guys who were having a hard time, as they say in the ED commercials now, obtaining and sustaining an erection. You know, one of the things that got thrown around a lot was use a cock ring, but also get creative, do other stuff if you're not hard. And, you know, if your boner shows up, great, then you can pivot. If your boner then abandons you, you can pivot back to other things. And, you know, having a reliable erection, if I may say so, as a penis haver, is a great thing. But sometimes when you're getting creative, when you're just not relying on your dick and just going right for penetrative sex, it makes, you know, it elevates what we often call foreplay to the main event. That's it, foreplay became, becomes the play. And that kind of sex is often really rewarding. And a lot of people, I think a lot of particularly male people, don't find their way 
to that kind of sex uh, unless they're having erectile dysfunction, hopefully not permanent lifelong, but you know, maybe occasional as you age, like your dick's not there. So what are you going to do? You can do other stuff. And often for women and other people have vulvas, the other stuff is more satisfying. It's likely to result in an orgasm than PIV. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's really interesting is like, is there a way to think about erectile dysfunction, yes, there is loss there. Yes, there is anxiety there um, for people who really want and, and have expected their penises to be erect when they want it to be on, on command, sort of. Um, but what else does that bring into your sex life? Um, I think that's something we really try to honor in that, that last third episode is, yes, we, there is grief there. There's loss. Um, also, bodies change. And there's not a pill in existence right now that's going to solve every problem that you have as your body changes and your sex life changes. So what else might you discover? So how much money has been made? Oh, billions and billions. Um, the, the Viagra actually, their their sales peaked about 10 years ago in 2012 um, when it was about $2 billion. But since then, Viagra sildenafil, which is the another name for the drug, it's gone generic. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, there's not just Viagra that are these brand, na- brand names for, for ED drugs. There's Cialis, et cetera. But lots and lots and lots and lots of money has been made. Hmm. And I guess, I, Dan, something I thought about a lot, I thought about you while we were doing this reporting. I'm just wondering, like, do you, <laughs> do you think, like, you've heard from people, um, you've talked with people as this came into the culture, as we've integrated it, as we've figured out what it can and can't do. Like, do you think of mm-hmm. Viagra and its development um, on balance? Like, how much do you think of it as a great thing? And how much of it do you think of it as like, uh, eh, this thing had trade-offs? Well, I, I do think of it, you know, in the final accounting as having done more good than harm. I deal with a lot of the fallout from it and mm. the misapprehensions that people might have about it. You know, if my partner has to take Viagra, he's not really attracted to me. I get this from women all the time in heterosexual relationships, they always seem to be on the lookout for any evidence that their male partner after, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years isn't into them. And the fact that, you know, a guy who was hard all the time when he was 28 is now 48 and needs to take Viagra and isn't hard all the time. Women will write me and say, isn't that proof he's not attracted to me? And then Mm. men have to sneak around to take Viagra because when their partners find the Viagra, uh, they get upset about it because a lot of people think this is a pill you take to get horny and have sex with someone you're not attracted to. And that's not true. And I wish I could, I wish I could write the one final column that got that into all, uh, I guess everyone's heads. I've, I've gotten a handful of letters over the years from gay men who believe the same thing, uh, that, you know, if their partner's taking Viagra, he wasn't into them. Uh, but particularly get that into the heads of straight women everywhere. And you would think straight women knowing about, you know, the way vaginas and vulvas change over the decades, uh, that it may become, you know, harder to lubricate, uh, you know, vaginal atrophy. There's also kind of a penile atrophy that may be at play. Um, And yet, and yet, there's just always this looking to the penis as an affirmation, Mm. right? Yeah. And then seeing that bottle of pills as... Prove he's not into you. 
like he used to be. And it's just, it's very shaming of men and men's bodies in a way that we don't talk about. Because, you know, most of the shaming of anyone and anyone's bodies that goes on in our culture is the shaming of women and women's bodies. But this is a way that we shame men and it can be very destructive. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's plenty of shame going around. Yeah. All right. We wanted to toss uh, a listener question at you since you've been doing all this research uh, into um, Viagra and boners. And uh, if you'd be so kind as to listen, I'm going to play it now. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm a 51-year-old cishet man in a companion marriage with a poly girlfriend, and I haven't had an erection in the last 10 years, owing to rectal cancer surgery when I was 41. Right after the surgery, I went to a urologist, got the little blue pill, Cialis, and a couple other samples, and the result was a tiny bit of fleeting hardness and nausea so bad I threw up. I went without for a couple of years, then I decided it was worth trying the injections directly into my penis, even though that is decidedly hashtag not my kink. The result was, again, a little bit of hardness, but nothing sustainable. I also have nerve damage from my surgery, so my sensation is way down. I love giving and receiving oral, so even with a basically non-functional penis, I've had an okay sex life, but I can't deny that hearing about the importance of a hard dick from women in my poly community and on Savage Love, which I adore and listen to the Magnum every Tuesday, makes me feel like less of a man, and definitely like I was robbed of something by the surgery that saved my life. I can't really afford implant surgery, and also, I'm more than a little nervous about it, especially since my last big surgery resulted in reduced sensation, and the thought of a hard cock with little to no sensation isn't a solution. I have that, thanks to the strap-on I occasionally use, but I get very little physical pleasure from that, and I miss being able to have sex where both my partner and I are having stimulation at the same time. 69 on mutual masturbation, while fun, isn't the same as good old-fashioned missionary or doggy sex, and I miss it. I also have mostly closed the door on dating for emotional reasons, but it sucks to feel like I have this obstacle where I'd have to explain my weird, broken dick to anyone I want to have casual sex with. I've unpacked this with a couple therapists and a trusted friend or two, and ultimately has come down to get used to it. And I mostly have. Is there anything else I can try? Yeah, I mean, I guess that that makes me think about what, what we, we were just discussing, which is like, I hear, I hear there, like the just real longing for a different kind of intervention. And and let me say, like, I, I'm not a medical expert. I encourage you to keep talking to to doctors and and finding out if if there's other things that that anyone would recommend. But but what I do hear there also is just like, you know, I just want to say like your your frustration with how your body changed because of this surgery, like it is a loss. Um and mm-hmm. you you need you I hear you honoring that loss. But along with loss comes again the question of like, what else? How might I think about sex? And um, there's a great metaphor that I have thought about a lot. We we talked to a sex therapist in Canada named Jen Bossio, and and she described like really trying to encourage people to think of sex not as foreplay and the main event, but instead like tapas. So you move away from this idea of like hierarchical kinds of sex and this is the you know ideal and instead like ooh, this is this feels good right here and like oh what might I enjoy over here and and I really like that uh, as a metaphor because again like sex is about pleasure uh, sometimes with yourself sometimes with a partner it's about intimacy it's about exploring if you can get into that mindset of of playful discovery together um, that might help shift a little bit of that feeling of like ugh. I just wish my body was working in the way it used to. Um, and and you, you've had this injury. Yeah, I encourage people to have as broad a definition as they possibly can of sex, of, of what counts, because then you're going to have a lot of it. 
And there's a lot of different kinds of sex then, if you have a broad definition, that you can be good at and feel competent and skilled at and excel at. But there may be things, particularly as we age and you know, time and life and disease take chunks out of us that are going to fall away. And that's awful. You know, you're going to always miss those things, always grieve those things. But, you know, if nothing can be done, then what you should do, what you can do is focus on what you're capable of and what you still enjoy and what your partners still enjoy. You may not be able to fuck like you did, but you, you know, and this is a big jump for a lot of guys, uh, but I've recommended it to guys before and they've tried it and loved it. You know, strap on dildos aren't just for lesbians. If, you know, part of the point of being able to fuck somebody is the pleasure you're giving the person getting fucked, even if your dick can't be there for you in that moment, you can still provide somebody with that sensation and that pleasure with a strap on dildo. And for a lot of men that can feel very emasculating, but men who can make the leap and identify with that dildo the same way a lesbian, you know, or a trans man might identify with that dildo. That is a way where you can still enjoy what I hope when you're fucking someone is 50% of the pleasure, which is the pleasure you're giving. Mm. And also it might be pleasurable to just feel yourself fucking someone, even if you don't feel the sensation, mm -hmm. like the performance of that. Um, there's something to that too. I love that. I love that advice. <sighs> There's not a lot of, you know, public radio prominent podcast hosts who'll come on my show and talk about giant sex toys. <laughs> so I appreciate you, Anna Sale, and I admire you and the work that you do. Um, Anna Sale is the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios. She, you, your team, you're hosting it, right? You're, I'm hosting it, but the whole the, team the has worked on it, including, in particular, my executive producer, Katie Bishop. I want to shout out her reporting on this. It's been fantastic and thorough, and we've all learned a lot because of her efforts. The whole team behind Death, Sex, and Money has a new limited series coming out called Hard, a three-part uh, podcast series, I assume, right. on the history of Viagra and its impact on our culture and our boners. Anna, thanks for jumping on the phone. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a mid-30s cisgender gay guy living on the West Coast, and I wanted to get your opinion on a tweet I saw a few weeks ago. I can't find the tweet at the moment, so I'm relying on my memory here. The tweet was from a cisgendered white gay guy who's a prominent sex-slash-kink-focused YouTuber living in the Bay Area, and it was posted when proof of vaccination and showing an ID to match was enforced at businesses. He was complaining that the staff called out his legal name, the one displayed on his ID, to the room. I think it was for his drink order. He was upset slash pissed off that they had used his name because he no longer identifies with it and he goes by his nickname slash YouTube handle. The part that got my attention was that he used the term deadnaming to describe what the staff had done. I had never seen deadnaming used for a cisgendered person before and thought it was used exclusively for trans people experiencing this type of situation. In follow-up tweets, he clarified that he would want staff to just avoid using people's names altogether without permission for everyone's benefit but he did still emphasize how upset he was that it had happened to him personally. So Dan, uh, what are your thoughts on the use of dead naming for cis people in a situation like this? Personally, I think he was going overboard for something that was done without any malice and could reasonably be expected to happen in a venue like that. I admit I don't know everything about his life, but if it was something he felt this strongly about, 
wouldn't it make sense to change his name legally? It would certainly be a lot easier than the struggle trans people face trying to change their gender on their ID. Words don't mean anything anymore. Uh, I think the example you cite of someone being upset that a business called out to deliver their drinks to them, the name that was on their ID, yeah, doesn't seem like a thing that you'd get upset about, but everybody's kind of cracking under the weight of the pandemic. And sometimes even I've gotten upset about things that when I looked back at them a day or two later seemed pretty trivial. That said, I wouldn't use the word or the term deadnaming for the reasons that you unpack in your call. Deadnaming is a term that uh, is used in the trans community to describe using someone's birth name, the name on their birth certificate, the name they do not use anymore or identify with anymore. And it's usually done uh, maliciously. It's painful. It's a parent who refuses to acknowledge uh, your new name, your, your actual gender identity, and they're throwing around your old name, your dead name, to communicate their disapproval or their disbelief or it's coworkers doing it or entertainers. If it's a prominent trans person doing it, you'll sometimes see Caitlyn Jenner referred to by her dead name and fuck Caitlyn Jenner. She's an odious piece of shit as some people, you know, some of all people are odious pieces of shit. She is an odious piece of shit. Shouldn't throw her dead name around. Shouldn't miss gender her. I've also seen Elliot page uh, get tagged with their dead name. Not a nice thing to do. And certainly to equate someone in a cafe or a bar calling out the name on your ID that you provided to them with the kind of malice of a, you know, a parent who disapproves of their child's gender identity or disapproved of their child for transitioning to their actual gender identity. I don't think those things are of equal weight and you shouldn't use dead naming to describe that. That said, you know, we live in an era where words don't mean anything anymore. And right now we're having a moral panic and the right wing is describing all out gay people everywhere as groomers being out and gay where children might hear, you know, might know that you are a gay person is to somehow groom those children grooming now, you know, used to refer to pedophiles and child molesters insinuating themselves into the lives of children that they wish to prey upon, not just earning the child's trust, but often earning the parents trust. And it was grooming, not that just the kid, but the family to abuse that child and get away with that abuse. And yeah, go look at Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed right now. We are living in an era where the worst people are using the worst words in the worst ways to harm queer people, trans people, gay people. And yeah, so while I find what you witnessed, what that person did, I hope they would think better of it. I hope they would uh, recognize that to equate their experience with the trans experience around dead naming and, and then using that term to describe what happened to them, a little disrespectful, maybe on the edge. But yeah, not as disrespectful as this grooming shit that's going on or groomer shit. Okay, groomer, hello, groomer shit that's going on right now. And yeah, rather than queer people policing each other, attacking each other, I'm not saying you're policing or attacking 
uh, the person you saw, you know, who's in the cafe or the bar who you described as his dead naming uh, in their Twitter feed. I'm not saying you're attacking them. You're just thinking about what they did. But yeah, uh, we may need to link arms and unite and fight the right right now and do a little less policing of each other. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-something cisgender pansexual lady in a newly opened marriage to a cishet guy in a major metropolitan area. So when my husband and I agreed to open up a relationship, we discussed condoms for PIV. We promised that we would take care with our health and not knowingly take unavoidable risks that might expose each other to anything but I have some questions about herpes. I consider myself pretty well informed about STIs in general, but I realize that I was coming at a lot of this from a pretty cishet point of view. Like you grow up and everybody's like condoms, 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 and people talk about dental dams. But, but I have I have very few friends who have ever actually used any, and they're hard to find. But okay, so uh, I recently met. Two trans guys who are really hot and lovely. They are primary partners uh, and we were all interested in playing together. One of them, after talking for a little bit, disclosed that he has HSV but hasn't had a breakout in a long time and that the two of them abstain when he has a breakout and that his partner has never had any symptoms whatsoever. He said he's down to use gloves and barriers if we all wind up throwing down. And first... I thought I would say, just say no thank you, because as I understand it, you can pass herpes at any time, even if you don't have any exposed blisters. But then I started talking to other friends, particularly other people with vulvas, and it seems like this is a pretty common practice to be either abstain from sex or to be much more careful if there are blisters present and otherwise if they haven't had a breakout in a while. Some of the people who I talk to, who I consider very smart, savvy people, consider them to ha- themselves to have dormant HSV, which I don't think is technically a thing. Um, th- and they admitted that they abstain from sexual contact if they have a breakout, but otherwise pretty much never use barriers during oral. So what's the general wisdom around this? <laughs> Most of the answers I've gotten from Googling are pretty hazy other than just like, you could get herpes at any time from anyone who has it, even if they don't know if they have it, and even from kissing and I had a tiny freak out because I definitely don't ask about STI history before kissing somebody. But then I remembered I'm also making all of these discoveries in the middle of a pandemic and that I'm making decisions about risk and COVID every time I leave the house. I'm not letting that freak me out anymore. So I don't know. I'm really into these two. And my instinct is to meet up with these guys and maybe like assign black gloves for hands that are inside me and white gloves for hands that are touching them and maybe wait entirely on oral for a little while. But like, uh, am I taking a much bigger risk than I would be having no gloves, no barrier sex with someone else who might have herpes and doesn't know it? What do I do? If you're uncomfortable with any degree of risk when it comes to the easily transmitted skin-to-skin sexually transmitted infections, herpes and HPV, you might want to rethink the open relationship. Your odds of encountering people in the wild who already have HPV, who already have HSV, herpes, uh, genital or oral, which you can have in your genitalia or your mouth, 
are pretty high. And if you've had multiple partners, you've almost certainly already been to bed with people who have herpes who didn't know and therefore didn't disclose or knew and chose not to disclose because of the out of all proportion fear that people have uh, about both of these infections, but particularly about herpes and the stigma attached to it, which is not to say that HPV, which can cause cancer, HPV, for which there are vaccines now, or is a vaccine now, please go get vaccinated. Uh, if your parents didn't get you vaccinated when you were a child, please go even as an adult now and get vaccinated against HPV. I got vaccinated against HPV in my 40s which is not recommended, but I did it anyway with my doctor's permission and, you know, at my doctor's urging. But when it comes to herpes, yeah, I'm sorry. Like you're, and also I wanted to say herpes in some people's lives can be a very big problematic deal, but in most people's lives, that's why there are so many people out there who have it, had one breakout they barely noticed and now don't know they have it and can possibly transmit it. In the absence of blisters, a person is going to be shedding a whole less lot virus than they would in the presence of blisters. Nobody, you know, hopefully anybody smart enough to be disclosing or sensitive enough and considerate enough to be disclosing isn't the kind of person who's going to have sex with you or want to have sex with you or anyone while they have blisters. Uh, and if they're taking medications, it suppresses the frequency of outbreaks and how infectious they are. And someone who has no blisters, who's not having an outbreak, is far, far less infectious than someone who's having an outbreak. But yeah, there's always going to be a risk. And if you have multiple partners and that the benefit of that, you know, the variety, the, the sexual adventure is worth it, then you have to kind of be a zen-ass grown-up about the risk and whether the risk is worth it. And if the risk ain't worth it, don't have an open relationship. Have a closed, sexually exclusive relationship with someone that you know for absolute certain isn't, hasn't, would never cheat on you and didn't also arrive at that relationship already having been exposed to, already having herpes without being aware of it. I would also recommend that you listen to a couple of episodes of the Savage Lovecast featuring Dr. Ina Park, author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Her book, which is excellent, now out in paperback, buy it, read it. It'll make you feel not immune, not, you know, herpes bulletproof, but it will help reading Dr. Park's book, perhaps make you a little more comfortable with the risks you're already running based on the choices you've already made, which is a long way of saying, go fuck those two hot guys that you're interested in. And no color-coded gloves that get swapped around. I'm sure that if you suggested that to them, they would tell you your anxiety was too great and it would be a, a boner killer for both of them and they'd rather not fuck around with you. If those were your conditions, you might be more comfortable sleeping with someone who doesn't have herpes or doesn't think they have herpes. Hey, Dan. I am a single queer person um, in my late 20s, and I live in a small city, and I'm looking for love, and it is hard out here. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to remember that, like, connection is abundant, and it's something that I'm eventually going to find in a lot of different forms throughout my life. But, you know, it's been a lot of 
mediocre dates or really good dates with somebody who's not looking for the same thing or, you know, just dating. Um, And I was wondering if you could just give a little pep talk maybe to those of us who are single and striking out and having a hard time and just feeling like all of the effort is for nothing. I don't know, like how abundant do you think connection and love and romance are? It can be hard sometimes to listen to the show and feel like, oh, wow, everybody else like has something going on that they can even have a question about. And I'm just striking out on dates. So I would love to hear a pep talk for me and and other people who are struggling. Uh, I might not be the right person to ask for a pep talk because my kind of perverse Irish Catholic impulse here is to lower your expectations isn't to tell you that love is abundant and waiting for you around the corner and you'll find it when you least expect it. And there's a lid for every pot and someone out there for everyone. Cause there are a lot of lidless pots out there. And there are a lot of people who are single all their lives who would rather not be single. And so my impulse is to tell you to not expend all of your efforts around dating and romance when it comes to trying to create a sense of abundance and connection in your life, but to create a life for yourself that you enjoy, whether you're single or not. And that's advice I give people who are partnered too. We're all one car accident or COVID infection away, uh, all of us who are partnered from being single again. And if all of your life has been about landing a romantic partner or, you know, all of your identity is wrapped up in being part of a couple or a quad, and then you're not, you know, you don't find a romantic partner or you lose the romantic partner you have, where are you going to be? Well, if you've built a life for yourself, that's rich and rewarding and full of connection most of it not romantic. Well, then even single, even solo, solo now, solo forever, solo again, you won't be miserable. And so, yeah, my advice to you would be to keep putting yourself out there to remember that every relationship you're ever going to have is going to fail until one doesn't that, you know, most dates aren't going to go anywhere, that most relationships are short-term affairs, some extremely short-term, and you want to make the best of all of them. And then, you know, at some point, hopefully something's going to come along, someone's going to come along who sticks around. And what you want to be careful of is that you don't have a list of deal breakers in your head where you say to yourself, oh, they're not looking for the same things I'm looking for, and you reject them And don't give them a chance and you don't give yourself a chance to adjust the things that you were looking for. Uh, I met Terry, sorry to cite my own love life as an example, 28 years ago and he was not what I was looking for. And 28 years later, here we are. If I hadn't have been willing, even though we didn't want the same things when we first met, to just kind of throw my hands up and say, okay, well, then we'll have a fling. We'll be together for a few months. We'll see, you know, how I feel after the end of those few months. I wouldn't be with him now. I wouldn't be with him still. So keep putting yourself out there. Easy for me to say, you know, you putting yourself out there, you're inviting rejection into your life and it can be painful, but keep putting yourself out there. It's the only way it happens. And while you're putting yourself out there, don't just put yourself out there romantically, put yourself out there socially politically, go do things, go places, enjoy things as safely as you can in the pandemic, 
that give you pleasure. And who knows, maybe you'll meet a guy on an app and you'll go out on one of those dates, or maybe you'll meet a guy out there doing a thing. I don't know what your things are, skydiving, snowboarding, spelunking, bike riding, book clubs, whatever your things are, go do those things. And you might meet someone at one of those things. And it might not be a guy. You say you're a queer woman. Maybe it'll be a woman or a non-binary person you meet. But the more you're out doing in the world, the less alone you'll feel, even if you don't have a romantic partner, and the more opportunities you'll have possibly to run across the person who could be an ideal romantic partner for you, if not forever, for a time. And all we ever get is that romantic partner for a time, because our time here on this earth is limited. My final piece of asshole, big city, snotty advice to you, you're a queer woman, you say you live in a small town, if that's something that you can change, the bigger the city, the more opportunities queers have to date. It's why queer people tend to clump up in big cities. We're, you know, with Gen Z, a growing segment of the population, but we're still a minority of the population, even among Gen Z. And the bigger the city that you're in, the more potential partners you'll come across who might be the right partner for a queer woman in her late 20s who's looking for it. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Suleiman O. Cheney tweets, and I'm sorry, Suleiman, if I butchered your name there. It only took four years, but I finally sprung for the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, joining my first sack lunch this week. Can't wait. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for becoming a Magnum sub, Suleiman. Your first sack lunch, though, will be May 5th. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, Suleiman, please enjoy the Savage Love archives and all the new bonus sex and politics conversations we're creating just for our Magnum subs. August 12th tweets. Another way to strictly enforce those don't say gay laws would be to require gender neutral bathrooms in all schools. How do school workers indicate what bathroom should be used without presenting or educating about gender identity? That's a really good point, August. Wished I'd thought of that. No more little boys' rooms, no more little girls' rooms, only little persons' rooms for everybody. And Kat Stark tweets, Ah, is a great response to an unsolicited dick pic, but this pic, which Kat enclosed, is my go-to. What that pic is is a sliced-up eggplant and the very sharp knife Cat used to slice it up. And yeah, that pick will put most guys off, but not all guys, as any regular listener of my podcast would know. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted your social media this week about the show. And now, listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response to the caller in episode 807 who lives in the Northwest and whose husband moved down to Southern California. He was wondering about whether or not to sell his house because it was full of memories. And Dan mentioned that it was a seller's market. And I think there's a great in-between. Maybe it's time for a remodel. That could be something as big as new landscaping or opening up the kitchen, or it could be something as small as just repainting the rooms might help. But either way, all the all the husband's things need to go in a box in the garage, and maybe a fresh coat of paint will do the trick. Plus, that'll definitely help the property value. Hi, Dan, Nancy, Tech Savvy Youth, and everyone. This community is great. Dan, I wanted to comment on episode 807, the woman who had caught her partner washing his own sheets with the fingerprints on the mirror. 
I think you were great to say dump that motherfucker already, but one major thing was missed because I think she really needs to look at the fact that this man was gaslighting her, clear gaslighting, and I know that term is overused these days, but in this case, it is the definition of gaslighting where he called you crazy when you were actually pointing out the truth. And I imagine he has been doing this in other ways. And then your natural response, because I imagine that you are empathic in some way or empathetic, is that you wanted to find out about monogamy and see if there was something wrong with you, which is the mechanism of gaslighting. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that you look at yourself. It is a healthy thing to look at yourself and see what am I doing wrong here? Where can I be better? Just use it on the right partner. And this guy, dump the motherfucker already. He's not the one to do that for. Hi, Mr. Savage. I am one of those crazy conservative moms and now regret it. I raised my kids to be in the church. I was a church leader. And now they came out of trance and they're amazing. I now feel so bad because I raised them from being a what I thought, little girl, everything. And you know what? Like, I believe God's bigger than all of us. And I do believe he loves all of us no matter what. The sad part is I was so strict and for so many years. And the most devastating part was that because of my beliefs, they ended up in a mental hospital. I love them and try to just tell them it doesn't even matter if you're a boy, a girl, uh, uh, undefined, I don't care. I love you, and I know God loves you. And unfortunately, I do live in Florida. And it's so hard because we're fighting so hard for these laws to change. Again, from, a, you know, what used to be a crazy conservative mom to now just realizing the truth and love and God and love conquers all and without any boundaries. And to all those Boys, girls, and undefined, like, you're perfect just the way you are. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Miami, Toronto, Bellingham, and Bend, the Hump Film Festival, will be playing in theaters in your cities soon. To find out when my Dirty Little Film Festival is coming to a theater near you or to stream Hump in the comfort and safety of your living room, go to humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Anna Sale on Twitter at Anna Sale. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for joining